0: For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for this week in Oklahoma politics. Along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel, joining me over Zoom video conference, the state of Oklahoma is taking part in at least five lawsuits against the Biden administration over vaccine mandates. The president says mandates are necessary amid a growing number of COVID-19 infections and dangerous mutations. But Governor Stitt says Biden doesn't believe in personal responsibility and doesn't trust Oklahomans to make decisions for themselves. Neva, do you think the state will be successful in its attempt to stop the mandates in court?
1: I think it remains to be seen, but I think what has happened is that Oklahoma... And particularly the legislature for the first time this year uh, gave the attorney general $10 million to fight what was viewed as federal overreach or uh, to review the legality of certain federal actions and I think this is what is uh, beginning to occur with the federal uh, Five lawsuits plus that that we are uh, seeing out there right now. So I mean, clearly, uh, when we talk about uh, the state and the federal the federal government, I mean, I think that uh, Oklahomans by and large are not uh, really that happy with what's going on in Washington, what's going on uh, with uh, some of these. Uh, Uh, some of these mandates that are occurring uh, in the Biden administration. And I think what we're seeing is this just play out now in the courts. And, uh, you know, when you look at the fact that Oklahoma is one of 14 states that's suing the Biden administration over their, uh, the CMS rules that uh, specifically talk about healthcare facilities, nursing homes. uh, Then you've got the 16 unnamed members of the Oklahoma national, the Oklahoma Air National Guard, uh, along with uh, the governor and attorney general, uh, challenging that uh, federal requirement on the military getting vaccinated. You've got the, uh, the, the vaccine mandates for the federal contractors. Uh, that's now been put on hold. Uh, uh, and then we've got these, these multiple states that are going after OSHA uh, in litigation, saying that uh, uh, this requirement the businesses of more than 100 employees have to be required for their folks to have COVID shots or get regular weekly testing. I mean, we're, we're seeing, um, I mean, we're seeing this snowball, not just in Oklahoma, but across the country as we try to get some determination on who has the ability to, um, uh, to, to execute these mandates and whether or not the public is really, uh, if whether or not this is good from the public vantage point moving forward.
0: Brian.
2: Well, you know, let's let's think about why President Biden thinks that we need these mandates to begin with. And one of the reasons that the federal government is pursuing mandates is that voluntary um, uh, vaccine uh, recipients have gone down, and and this is the thing that gets folks over the hump in many cases. I mean, the uh, the state medical association, even though they don't uh, endorse or support mandates uh, from the government. One of the things that they've said is that as they've talked to patients in Oklahoma, they know that if somebody's job is on the line, that that may be the thing that gets them over uh, their concern about getting a vaccine and going to get the vaccine. Um, and the reason that these mandates are even necessary and that the federal government's pushing it is because of misinformation about the vaccines, um, a, a deliberate campaign to create a political wedge issue out of a public health issue. And that's the biggest concern here. You know, I think that uh, if you look at some of the, the most recent polling on this, Oklahomans, um, while they don't support a federal government mandate, they, they do support the ability of private sector businesses to set their own mandates. They recognize the importance of that. Where... I think the attorney general and the governor have gone askew. Here is that they've placed so much emphasis on this litigation and on the politics around vaccines, and even the attorney general, in some of his comments, made you know very um, and I also you know dangerous comments uh, that that are run are counterfactual to uh, public health and the the scientists uh, and our doctors that are telling us that these vaccines are safe, they're simple, and they're they're a necessary uh, step. If we want to get back to the kind of personal freedom that the governor is talking about, higher vaccine rates in Oklahoma are the fastest way to get there. I think the governor is right when he says that this virus is here, we're going to have to live with it. It's going to become, if it's not already endemic, but the best way to live with this, and in some cases, literally live, is with a vaccine.
0: I, Neva, I've got to ask you, at what point does a personal responsibility take way to public safety? We, uh, we, want personal, we want personal responsibility, but we still have to buckle our safety belts. We still can't do certain drugs. We can't drink and drive. There's laws. At what point does the public safety become more important than somebody's personal, personal responsibility?
1: And I I think that's the thing that we're grappling with is it, it, where is that line that, that we, that, that becomes the, uh, the clear cut point when we look at Oklahoma, Yes, as Ryan says. I mean, we have, I think it's 52% was the last statistic I saw of Oklahomans who are fully vaccinated. I mean, that's uh, uh, clearly one of the, I think we're in the 12 or 13 uh, lowest in the country still in terms of vaccination rate. That being said, folks have made a determination that they do not want the, vac- the vaccination um, and they you know, clearly uh, have issues with uh, being mandated or forced to do that. Now, the flip side of that is I think private business, what we're seeing is private business by and large saying through the, you know, those that are members of the state chamber and other organizations, now, when they've been polled, have made it very clear, we need to make our own determination. I mean, if we want to make a determination, we want our employees uh, vaccinated, we'll make that, but don't impose it upon us. What we should do as private business, it's our decision. And that has been a, a long held Republican philosophy that uh, that has been pro-business to allow uh, businesses to, to make, those, uh, make those decisions and choices. So we're never going to get a, uh, we're never going to get consensus on this subject what we have to do is continue to see the give and take. Clearly the Oklahoma State Medical Association and, and um, the the president speaking for that group this week, I mean, uh, has a point of view that that is important and needs to be out there, as well as these other counterpoints of view that are being expressed some by elected officials and just the public at large.
2: I just wish General O'Connor and the governor would spend half as much time telling folks to go get the vaccine. I mean, these these are both public officials that have the vaccine themselves. Uh, admittedly, they've you know, the governor got it publicly as a demonstration that it was safe and which was a, a great thing for him to do. I think he should keep on that. I mean, that's you know, he needs to be saying that. And, and the attorney general who has his vaccine needs to stop using his bully pulpit to talk about uh, uh you know, just junk science uh, and and uh, things, you know, scaring people away from getting the very vaccine that he's already benefiting from. They need to use their platform to encourage uh, folks to get that vaccine.
0: A federal investigation of the state's new public health lab finds the facility lacks the staff for the volume of testing it handles after it's moved to Stillwater The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services also found issues with how COVID-19 samples were stored, documented, and processed. The health department says it's taking actions to fix these concerns. Ryan, do you think it will be enough?
2: I mean, it remains to be seen. We don't know a lot about the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services investigation right now because it's still ongoing. I mean, the state has responded to it. Right now, all we're hearing is the state's response. We haven't heard CMF, CMMS's uh, response to the state uh, and their findings and, and what that will ultimately look like. You know, the the, the state will, I mean, it's not we're, we're not gonna lose our lab over this. We're, we're not gonna lose accreditation over this. Um, but it is it is, I think, a real... Uh, it really highlights the troubles that public health officials were raising over a year ago whenever the governor decided you know, very quickly uh, and without legislative input to move the lab from Oklahoma City to Stillwater. And you, know, you saw an enormous reduction in force uh, then because folks were retiring early and they lost, I think it was 30% plus of their personnel just with the move. Um, and then if you look at just labor shortages in the current hiring market right now that we're in in late 2021 and, and possibly will be in into 2022, it's hard to staff those jobs up. Um, and you know, you know it's and some of this though is just you know you've got you've got folks conducting tests that are also, uh, doing the administrative work on the back end of those tests, and um, you know that's that's going to create delays. That's going to create inefficiencies, and ultimately, I think that it um, you know weighs on the kind of public confidence that we can have in the the outcomes and the results from that lab. Um, yeah, you know, the the reports. Some of the stuff just seemed kind of silly. Uh, you know that they had um, private medical information of of, uh, of folks that had their Covid test kept an unlocked doors, uh, and you know they're and they needed better security. So, the, I think the state responded that they got to do a new doorknob and a and a keypad. Um, and so, I don't know that that's the kind of security that that I want with my private healthcare information. But we'll see. This is a, a continuing story, and and hopefully the state will get a good roadmap uh, out of this investigation instead of a, a real punitive uh, response from the federal government.
0: Neva.
1: I think that's right. I mean, what we had was an on site investigation that began uh, earlier this, back in September, I think it was. Um, and what they've done is a, a thorough investigation. And I think something to remember as we as we think about these public health labs and 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 uh, state facilities uh, of all kinds, uh, they have annual audits, they have annual reviews, they have uh, periodic uh, uh, inspections that are unannounced. I mean, and these are in CMS's case. I mean, they regulate all laboratory testing uh, across the nation. And so there are protocols, there are reviews in place that are designed for quality and safety. So. What, when they come up with some are minor issues relatively speaking when you when you look at it in a report, some are more glaring and, and more significant. But in terms of just looking at moving a lab and the things that come along with that in terms of uh, adjusting for staff training, for protocols for all of the the things that naturally occur, um, some of that just seems to be what uh, was enveloped in this particular, in this particular investigative report, and I think going forward, um, you get a new commissioner in place. Um it seems that that's uh, uh, nearing uh, in, uh, nearing a reality. And the uh, interim, I think interim commissioner uh, basically said took the position that this uh, review provided the opportunity for them to uh, uh, to move forward and do better in terms of providing the quality services that Oklahomans expect from their labs. So um, I think think it is nothing to uh, just kind of uh, uh, be dismissive of, but I think we need to keep it in a larger context of this is something that goes on year in and year out to ensure that facilities are are meeting the standard that uh, everyone expects.
0: A resignation letter from a governing board member at EPIC Charter School prompts an investigation from the State Department of Education. Former Vice Chair Catherine Steno says the board chairman and the school's superintendent gave her misleading information to influence her decision making. She also says EPIC withdrew a high percentage of its students for truancy and handed out extremely large unapproved bonuses to employees. Neva, what do you think about these allegations?
1: Well, I think they're serious, and I think uh, I think it's something where uh, they've got to they've got to get a handle on this. I mean, uh, in any school district, in any situation, when you have these uh, these types of uh, allegations being leveled, they have to be they have to be seriously looked at and in this instance I mean it appeared that you had a board member uh, who uh, uh, was really challenging and questioning some of the uh, uh, some of the things that were occurring and and clearly got pushback for it and uh, specifically the uh, uh, this uh, uh, series of uh, raises that were uh, that were given uh, without kind of the board being fully um, made aware of it according to according to that board member that resigned Uh, she also said that uh, that the uh, that the folks that were terminated uh, last month uh, the employees that uh, those were folks uh, including the entire auditing internal auditing team I mean that would give pause uh, in the midst of everything else that's being uh, uh, that's that's being alleged uh, and uh, being questioned at this point so I think uh, you know I think as we saw from the uh, Uh, state superintendent and from others. Uh, This is, uh, again, a continuation of many investigations, and they all need to go forward fully vetting every, every concern, every issue raised, and, and, uh, and then address those in a significant way, so that people uh, both parents, with schools that are involved with Epic, as well as uh, the board and everyone uh, surrounding it, can have uh, can have confidence that things are being conducted in a proper manner.
2: Ryan, uh, same charter school, uh, different investigation. I mean, it's uh, this is just um, it doesn't seem like Epic is ever going to be able to get its uh, feet underneath it. I mean, this uh, the the whole every time that. They, they take two steps forward. I mean, I mean, I think that when we were, you know, looking at, all right, well, the the founders uh, were gone, you know, the, the folks that were um, allegedly at the root of a lot of the issues that led to Epic being tens of millions of dollars in arrears to the state of Oklahoma under a consent decree that uh, even allows them to keep their doors open uh, and operating, um, that they were the problem. And, you know, what we've, begin to see in these other allegations is that it seems to go even further than the founders. And um, there, there's, a, there's a culture, uh, or at least an alleged culture within, within Epic um, that you know, continues to this day. I think when you see a board member resign like that, I think one of the things that you can take away from that is a recognition and, and probably an increasing recognition uh, for board members in situations like this, that they have personal liability. Um, and, you know, I see a resignation like this and a very detailed resignation letter like this from the longest serving board member uh, on the EPIC Charter School Board, which is kind of amazing that their longest serving board members you know, was just at one year. Um, you know, the, the total lack of institutional knowledge, but I could suppose an argument can be made that the, the last institutional knowledge that you have kept around, you wouldn't have wanted around. So they're in you know, a tough spot but you have a very detailed resignation letter like this. To me, this is the kind of thing that um, you're prepared to hand over to prosecutors and a potential grand jury at some point uh, to try to grant your give yourself some sort of immunity and distance of, hey, I, I as soon as I saw this, I blew a whistle. Uh, I didn't sit by. I didn't hide this. Because these board members, um, they have a duty that goes beyond... EPIC. They have a duty to uh, the people of Oklahoma and in particular to the parents and students uh, that attend EPIC charter schools. And so uh, that's that's what I see. here. Right? I see a board member recognizing that this is, in their estimation, beyond repair and that if they stuck around any longer, that they themselves could be uh, caught up in some culpability as well. So um, again, unfolding uh, melodrama, soap opera of, of EPIC charter schools uh, continues. Um, you know, and, and perhaps this is the year that at the legislature we begin to see some serious consideration of, of how the state, uh, uh, and in particular the State Department of Education, can better monitor and hold uh, virtual charter schools accountable.
1: Well, and I think one of the things also that has occurred is that you have the chairman of, of the uh, Oklahoma Statewide Virtual Charter School Board uh, weighing in on this whole conversation in the last week or so, and basically saying that uh, that they are treating uh, the uh, the claims, uh, the assertions made by this outgoing board member, very seriously, and that they will uh, do their due diligence to really uh, 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 take every single every single piece of information, investigate the concerns that have been raised and, and find out what the facts are. And you know, at this point, I mean, like anything, when you have a lot of allegations, a lot of assertions, a lot of claims, I mean, until we see a process where they're all fully vetted, I mean, we can speculate all day long, but we need to, what we need to see is a definitive report, an investigation conducted that uh, puts us all basically to bed once and for all.
2: And and the uh, these investigations take all the oxygen out of the room for every other task that the board has in front of. And they have a ton of task uh, in front of it. And this takes all the air out of all the oxygen out of the room. Um, And so, you know, more important matters are left to compete with the pressing concerns of the investigation. Uh, So even if the allegations aren't entirely true or if they're not true at all, just the, the, the fact that they're having to deal with these allegations, and perhaps these allegations have greater credibility because of their past acts. Um, even again, if they're not true, they, they have credibility because you've, you've got these past acts that demonstrate a pattern in behavior. So if they're going to be dealing with this on top of other investigations for over a year, I'm sure, um, and that's, that's got to be very taxing on their ability to actually perform their mission.
0: A dozen activists want an investigation of Oklahoma County District Attorney David Prater. The group, including the sister of former death row inmate Julius Jones, delivered thousands of signatures to the Oklahoma County Court clerks seeking a grand jury investigation into Prater for allegations of filing frivolous legal actions and trying to intimidate the Pardon and Parole Board during Jones's clemency case. Ryan, will this group prevail in getting the investigation?
2: I think the investigation is going to happen. They turned in over 7,000 signatures. They, the number that they actually needed was closer to five. Um, the, the folks that have been working in this, uh, Jess Eddy, Nicole McAfee, Hannah Royce, um, Brian Jones, uh, and I'm, I know I'm leaving folks out, but um, these are, they're pros. They know what they're doing. I, they, they've been, you know several of these folks have been through signature collection campaigns at the statewide level in the past. I have no doubt that uh, you know when when marty piercy has been down at elemental coffee collecting signatures that they've been doing it the right way um, you know so even if some of these are invalidated i feel like they've got enough cushion the investigation's going to happen you know i'll just say you know i'm sure we'll be talking about the the contents of what that grand jury might look like but you know the district attorney in any given jurisdiction in the state of oklahoma is one of the most political or the most powerful political figures in the state and the oklahoma county district attorney, may be, uh, and I, I would argue, is the most powerful political figure in Oklahoma. Um, and the, you know, whether you, you like David Prater or you loathe loathing him, uh, the fact remains, the ability to hold a district attorney accountable uh, is very difficult, uh, if, if not impossible in most instances. And you'd say, well, hold them accountable at the ballot box. Well, nobody ran against uh, Mr. Prater uh, you know, nearly three years ago. So there wasn't even a conversation in Oklahoma County. And it's really tough to get folks to run for those seats. So uh, the grand jury, the citizen petition driven grand jury process is one of the most powerful tools available to, to Oklahomans to hold their DAs accountable, um, and I think that uh, as as Jess Eddie had said that you know, this goes well beyond. Uh, no, I think it was I think it was the the uh, the uh, the artist uh, the music artist JB said this goes well beyond Mr. Prater. This is a signal to other uh, DAs that are currently in office around the state or who may come into office at some point that the people have this tool against you now you know, I hope that the legislature gives citizens even more tools to hold prosecutors accountable. But this is a powerful one. And it's, it's, I think, encouraging to see it exercised in this way, neither. regardless of what happens. Yeah, Neva.
1: Well, you know, it's a little ironic. I mean, that we're talking about a district attorney, a prosecutor, it's his job to prosecute cases that that come uh, in that particular, in, in in the particular county, in this instance, Oklahoma County. I mean, to talk about the DA continually trying to, uh, uh, in, in their words, kill Julius Jones, uh, make his life unbearable. I mean, what he did uh, in the course of uh, time, in this case, in every case, is his job. And, and so to say that there's bias, I mean, the bias can be on both sides. I mean, their bias is they don't like what was done. They want something done differently. They don't want the death penalty even to be in existence. But the reality is, just like uh, District Attorney Prater has said, is that, uh, that he is proud to be the advocate for, in this instance, the Paul Howe family and all of the uh, uh, the victims and families that have been, um, that, that have been targeted and, in and many times by very brutal, heinous crimes. So he's unapologetic in his role. They certainly have an opportunity as, uh, as community activists, as they've been described to go through, uh, a process that's outlined, uh, If they can get 5,000 of those signatures validated, uh, then the process can move forward. It's, uh, it's rare that this, uh, that this type of process, uh, uh, has a has occurred in this fashion. I mean, I think it's been two years since a, a grand in ju- Oklahoma County grand jury has been convened in this fashion. But uh, nevertheless, there is a process. But I think this notion that somehow, I mean, he can be singled out as this bad guy for having done uh, for having done his job and his office having conducted the work that they are required to do. I mean, they have a responsibility to carry out. Um, I think the, I think this is one of those instances where it seems there's a blurred line in the conversation between reality and, 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 and fact in terms of what's going on.
2: Well, Neva, you know, I'll agree that the, the claims of um, racial bias in prosecutorial decision-making the legal standard to prove those is, is incredibly high. I think that it's very difficult to demonstrate that, but I, I do think that There have been when when these grand juries convene, uh, you know, their their charge uh, is is pretty expansive. Uh, And so, you know, you know, thinking back to things like allegations of of witness tampering uh, in a case that uh, was reported by Nondoc against Mr. Prater in a case uh, that even Judge Elliott said that, you know, this isn't the venue to decide whether what he did was right or wrong. Um, You know, I think that there are a number of other claims that are, you know, do provide some uh some factual framework um to you know to that that may be more that maybe should be more concerning to actually getting some sort of an indictment uh against mr brader
0: the state republican party is facing an audit from the federal elections commission the investigation stems from issues during the 2020 election cycle including bookkeeping mistakes failure to timely respond to fec inquiries and missed deadlines the state GOP already paid $13,000 in penalties because of infractions from the same time period. Neva, how is the party faring with these new allegations?
1: Well, obviously, uh, I think I think as we've talked about many times on the program, um, I think I think both the uh, uh, Oklahoma Republican and Oklahoma Democrat parties uh, are having their uh, uh, their their issues in terms of uh from an organizational standpoint, the struggles internally with the different uh, factions uh, in party activists that are are engaged. In this instance, we're talking about kind of the technical side of the the scoreboard where parties are required to file both with the Federal Election Commission and the Oklahoma State Ethics Commission. um, And there is regular reporting requirements as with any candidate or elected official. And so I think we do see See that it, it's very often the case that you have uh, you ha- you have discrepancies, you have questions uh, that come up, and they're resolved. In some cases, it's an and it it may be uh, late filing, it may be something that was inadequately uh, um, uh, insufficient in terms of the information provided. So that's not necessarily outside the norm. We see this all the time in races from the presidential level all the way down that are required to do reporting, but. The flip side is, I mean, obviously, for folks that that write checks to a political party or write checks to a candidate, they want to have uh, a, a feeling that things are being done by the book, that things are being done uh, as required. And so it does raise some flags. And and certainly for those that are the most uh, intimately involved in the political party process, that's where the kind of the, the rub comes and where we see most of the conversation take
2: place. Ryan. Well, you know, you know, twenty or thirty years ago, a story like this about either of the political parties uh, in the state of Oklahoma, I think, would you know, have much more gravity than this does. Um, and you know, I, I think that we're kind of at this point where uh, news of of uh, of an FEC violation or an investigation into an FEC violation has just become kind of blasé. It's it's almost it's almost expected, and I think that it. That doesn't you know, mean to diminish the uh, the importance of complying with FEC regulations, but it certainly doesn't have a lot of bearing, uh, if any bearing, on the outcome of electoral politics in the state of Oklahoma or voter registration in the state of Oklahoma. I doubt that there's any Oklahoman out there today uh, that's going to pick up the, the newspaper and read about uh, an, F- an FEC pending investigation against the state Republican Party uh, and decide that you know they need to change their registration or not change their registration to Republican because of that. Um, yeah, you know, I think that it it raises a, a larger question about just the, the relevancy of these party apparatus uh, or apparatus in, in Oklahoma and both the Democratic and the Republican parties. You know how how important are they? Um, you know Neva mentioned, you know, disconnects within the party. certainly those uh, exist within the Democratic Party. And in the Republican Party, you have a chair who has endorsed uh, primary opponents to incumbents. Um, and, you know, there's, there's not a love, not a lot of uh, love lost there. I think it'd be a much more interesting story, but still probably not all that bearing on uh, on any political outcomes. If Senator Lankford had an FEC violation, uh, or, or uh, you know, a Democratic, or, or Joy Hoffmeister had a, a state ethics violation, you know, some somebody that's a candidate. I mean, and I think that we're just at this point where candidates matter so much more uh, than the party in terms of relevance and, and, uh, and the public's eye. Um, this will play out. I, I, I suspect that whatever happens here, uh, you know, and this is just based on my experience working with you know, Democratic Party politics, is that whatever happens here will probably you know, matter a lot more uh, to the folks inside the party than it does to most Oklahomans.
0: Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff, or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at KOSU.org.